Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. This is our attempt to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. We believe every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Let's jump in. Hey, welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. My name is Taylor Walling. I'm a friend of the podcast and not a regular host. I'm a guest host because, awkwardly, I am going to be interviewing your regular host, David Bowden. David, welcome to your show. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good introduction. I appreciate that. I I kind of turned on my radio voice for half a second. Yeah, Yeah, you've got a face for radio. Uh, That's, um, okay, well, if, uh, if you were with us, Last time, uh, David interviewed me a little bit about some of my journey with the Bible and now being in full-time ministry. I'm at a church called the Hills Church in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, and longtime uh, friend of David, uh, who uh, we were both in each other's weddings mm-hmm. and have gone through a similar journey uh, in, in ministry and also in uh, our interacting with uh, the gospel in, and God's Word. So... Um, David, if you, if you didn't hear our conversation last week, you should go back and listen to it because you need to get to know Taylor and well, his story. Fair enough, but that's the that's goal. My plug. The, here's well, fair, fair enough, but here's my plug. Here's here's, here's my goal today. <laughs> okay. My goal today is Lay to record what I initially, when you first told me about uh, the fact that you were doing a podcast, I want to record what I initially thought the first episode was going to be. <laughs> Which so, was so fifty five episodes or so later. That's right, right, right. Which was like you know, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, writer uh, author Simon Sinek, like he mm-hmm. has a book called Start with Why. Right. And like in my brain, <laughs> when you and Seth first sat down and you were like, "All right, here we go, Exodus." Like I was like, "Whoa, hold on, let's let's all like you're like the guy who walks into the business meeting and was like, "All right, I've been looking at these charts and we all need to figure this out." And I'm like, "Wait, hold on, can we all get to know everybody for a half a second?" Like like anyway, so. Here's here's what I want to hear a little bit more about, um, and and knowing some of your story personally, I think for for uh, a bunch of your listeners, I think it's going to be um, meaningful and helpful to to hear some of your journey with uh, with faith and specifically with uh, with with the Bible. So mm. um, so just if give us just a little shorter snapshot of uh, your your upbringing, but really then we're gonna we're gonna jump into the the college world here in just a second for, okay. for where you were at. Sure. So I grew up uh, like you as a PK, preacher's kid. Yep. Uh, but I was a YPK, which is fraught with much more disaster. Uh, youth youth pastor's oh, kid. Oh, okay. I was like, is that like a, like a Y2K thing? No. no. Okay. It's a YPK, youth pastor's kid. Gotcha. And so I grew up in the church. Uh, I was raised Baptist, which mm. has its own... No, I'm just kidding. I love, I love my Baptist friends. Uh, I, I get my Master of Southern Baptist Theological, so I can't slam any I was going to say, that's pretty yeah. Baptist. It's pretty freaking Baptist. <laughs> um, and so I... Uh, Anyway, so I grew up in the church, um, and so God was an assumed thing. I put my faith in Jesus at the age of seven and was baptized at the age of seven um, while my parents were on a mission trip to Nicaragua. So I, They weren't there? No. Oh, no, I, I, they made me wait get, to get baptized until okay, they got I was, back. I was but I was like, say. no, I want, I want in right now. <laughs> and my grandma was like, your parents will kill me. That's right. And so uh, anyway, and, but, but then um, I, my, parent, my parents went through a divorce. And like watching my dad go through a divorce, my mom go through a divorce um, after being in full-time ministry and seeing all that kind of crumble. And I approached my dad 
with um, the Bible and I took him to all the passages. I was in seventh grade and I took him yeah. to all the passages in the Bible that talked about divorce. And what do you say? Uh, and he, <laughs> I was like, Dad, look, you can't get a divorce. Like everything's like God says you can't, so you can't. Like we grew up, we do what the Bible says. Right. And uh, I remember him saying like, uh, well, well, buddy, I, I believe it's God's will that I get a divorce. And I was like, I thought God's will was in the Bible. And yet you're just making up what, you, you know, what seems like whatever you want God's will to be. Yeah. And so that really created a fracture in my faith. And so I was like, okay, then I don't want anything to do with the Bible right now. And so, um, you know, I had my super rebellious skateboard years, you know. Uh, I've seen photos from oh, that. Oh, yeah. I yeah. was a total, a shredded. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad shredder. this is a podcast. Nobody needs to see those photos. No, <laughs> no, no, no slideshow. Um, <laughs> but God didn't let me go along in that life, and he didn't let me go very far in that life. I was pretending. I've never been very good at being a rebel. So um, he, uh, he, he called me back um, the summer after my freshman year, uh, and I had a really intense encounter with God and with the gospel, and literally turned 100 like 180 degrees around yeah. and it was totally different and um i remember getting dropped off um at the bus that was going to take us to this camp that i was going to and uh it was like one of the top drug dealers in our school dropped me off whoa <laughs> and uh and he was like my best friend and uh he dropped me off and i don't mean the hard drugs he was like the pot dealer okay right enough. he was the pot dealer <laughs> And he dropped me off uh, at the bus, and he was like, don't let those Christians change you too much, was what he said. Ominous. And I went like, yeah, totally, bro. <laughs> right. And uh, so I get on the bus and go to camp and have this insane experience like two days in, and my life is just wrecked uh, in the best possible way. I come back. I step off the bus. The first thing he says to me, same guy, picks me up. First thing he says to me, oh, no they got to you. Whoa. I hadn't even said anything yet. Oh my goodness. It was like, I had changed. And like, I legitimately felt that. And so, um, from then on, I just threw myself into the Bible. And I, it's not until like retrospect now, I think part of that was my dad, he, do, he doesn't have this attitude now, but I think what I gleaned from that one interaction we had about divorce yeah. in the Bible, the will of God, I think what that spurred on in me, even subconsciously, was this desire to say, I don't want my experience or desires or sin or justifications or presuppositions or blinders to dictate what God actually says in his word. Yeah. Like, I want to know what he actually has said. And so um, there's this chain of uh, Christian bookstores in Oklahoma and some other surrounding states called Mardell. Oh, yes. And um, I would have my, my mom would drop me off at Mardell and um, they have like, Back then, like a third of their store was Bibles, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of Bibles, different versions and commentaries, and they had a few tables where you were supposed to like go and sit down and see which version worked best for you. Well, I would get like interlinear Bibles, you know, like side by side. Oh, okay. Like, I was like interlinear. I don't even know what that is. So like you know NIV next to King James. Okay, you I know parallel you. Bibles, right? Right, 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 right. Uh, Or then and then I would get a few commentaries, and I would just read. And like, and this is like 10th grade. Right. You huge nerd. I'm a total nerd. <laughs> but like, I don't know what it was. It was insatiable. Like I just had to know what was in this book. And wow. so, um, I mean, it wasn't that big of a 
step than for me to whenever we were like going to college it was like okay where do i go get a bible degree right and so my my now wife who was my girlfriend then wanted to go to oklahoma christian that was her dream her whole life because they had a band that you could go be in and sing she's a huge singer and so they have this band called summer singers that they just go to summer camps all throughout the and, south yes, and, and they and sing sing cover songs of popular <laughs> music and she was like i want to go to oklahoma christian because i want to be in the summer singers and i was like okay they have a bible degree i'll go so megan had megan had a dream yep and that's why you and i are sitting talking that's, that's, that's exactly because right. we met at oc yeah, that's right oh my yep. goodness wow and, and i need to thank megan you do and she went on to be a summer singer yes yeah, she did and, uh, it was, a, it was a, a pretty great one a pretty great one yep and so <laughs> anyway so i went and got my bible degree and um there and you know soon after which i know you want to hit on is where my relationship with the Bible went through a lot of peaks and valleys and twists and turns. Right, right. Because during yeah. some of that time, you're coming from a Baptist background, you've gone through this renewal of a faith, hunger for the Word, now you're starting to study and you're digging into, Was this, this is probably the first time you're digging into like text criticism. Oh, definitely. Yeah, right. and for people who aren't familiar, text criticism, what it does is, and it's, it's not a evil like uh, um, practice. I right. think for a while I kind of demonized it after part of the story, but gotcha. it's a very good practice. And what it is, is it takes all the old copies of the manuscripts of the New Testament uh, from all the different places. So, you know, if it's like in Syria or if it's in Alexandria, right, there were these families of texts and then there's dates of texts and they cross-reference them to try to figure out uh, what was the most original, right? And yeah. so, uh, and, you know, we, we have like 99.6% accuracy 100% sure of every single word it's in it's insane right but there are people out there uh, people like uh, Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Cross and uh, people who have uh, started this thing called the Jesus Seminar several decades ago gotcha. uh, which they kind of picked up on this German trend from the 18th century with like Schleiermacher and some of these other scholars that's a pretty awesome name it's a great name uh, he did some horrible stuff though gotcha. in the field of Bible study uh, and they went on this thing called the quest for the historical Jesus which had this presupposition of doubt behind it that basically said the Jesus presented in scripture cannot be real because hmm. he did miracles and was raised from the dead and people said he's the son of God and that stuff doesn't happen. Oh, so this is almost kind of like, you know, the uh, leading up to what, you know, the famous like Jefferson Bible where Thomas Jefferson was like, obviously yep. there's a bunch of stuff in here that doesn't count. So he kind of uh, famously like either marked out or ripped out yes. sections of the gospels that were the miracles and the resurrection exactly right. and just left the moral teachings. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so um, that's that's the place that um, th that's the stuff I started to read in college, not because it was prescribed to me ah, in the classroom okay. at all. They would never prescribe that stuff at Oklahoma Christian. So how did you get your hands on it? I got bored in school, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, I only have to write two research papers this semester. You know, like what am I supposed to do with all this free time? You idled your hands into heresy. I did, <laughs> as most people do. And so I was like, I was just looking for a challenge. Okay. You know, and and man, these guys challenged my faith. So let me ask you something real quick yeah. about this because I, even as you're describing and explaining text criticism, there's part of me that that like is like, whoa, that's you know, high-minded and academic. There's another part of me that's like, I get uncomfortable. I get Definitely. squeamish. Yes. Because I think, well, hold on. No, no, no. Like, I don't think about the Bible and immediately think like, like Syria or Egypt or like, you know, I, I think like, no, that's, it's from God. You oh. know? And so, <laughs> right, and so right, it's right. like, it, there's this temptation sometimes with the Bible to, to go like, okay, hold on. I don't want to, I don't want to investigate that stuff too much. Mm. Because I don't want to see how the scriptural sausage gets made because it makes me <laughs> very sausage. uncomfortable. Uh, yes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. 
and I and it's 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 the way some Christians approach the uh, the topic of science. I don't want to investigate or learn because I'm it, afraid of what I I'm might afraid see. of what I'm going to see mm-hmm. that will cause me to doubt. So yep. what? As you wrestled through some of this, yeah, like looking back, what could like when you say, well, it's not I demonized text criticism or, or learning mm-hmm. these things. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We should not. But also, there's danger in it. Yes. How, like how, how have you like looking back? Mm-hmm. What would you have cautioned College David? Oh yeah, sure. So I would first I would say read reputable people, like people like Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan have a massive agenda, mm-hmm. which is to lead you away from the faith, like because they have they've deconverted Mm. and they think that you should too. And so they are going to take the raw data of textual criticism and they're going to present it in a way that skews it away from what the data actually points to. I see. And so they're going to say things like there are hundreds of thousands, there are more differences in the, in the biblical manuscripts than there are words in the Bible, which is a true statement. And that scares the crap out of Christians. Right. Right. But it shouldn't because what they mean by that is uh, if someone spelled the word peace, right? Uh, like a piece of pie. Right. They put the I and the C, uh, the I and the E in the wrong place. Oh, and there's and there's a difference. And that's one difference. And now, we but get... we know it's the word peace. Right. Okay. Right. And and it, and that might happen in a thousand manuscripts. That might happen uh, thirty times, thirty misspellings. But we we it's always the same word. And so they say, well, how can we ever know? How can we ever rely? It's because uh, it's the word peace, and it's very obvious that it's the word peace. Gotcha. And so first off, they take raw biblical data like that from text critics that are supposed to point us to the fact that this is an extremely reliable document, and they try to present it in a way that actually divorces the truth from the data. They skew the optics. That's exactly right. Okay. The other thing is they take what is the strength of the Bible— and turn it into a weakness. So what is the strength so of the So the strength of the Bible is the fact that there are thousands of manuscripts, right? That no other text from antiquity has that many manuscripts. And so they take those, uh, those, all those texts and the fact that there are spelling errors or they skipped a word or they dropped a definite article or they added the definite article, but like that's 1% of the 99%. So we just rely on the 99% and we like, oh, they messed, the scribe messed up. They left off the the. They left off the the. But okay. we know that it's there because... All the other ones have it. Right. And so, duh, we know what's going on here. And they say, like, well, there's just all these differences. Well, that's because there's so many copies, because it's such a reliable document. And so, like, uh, the strength of Scripture is that it's, even though it was copied thousands of times in dozens of locations by hundreds of scribes, it remained rel- like like completely, pretty much unchanged. Yeah. And any change that's there, because of the vastness of the witnesses that we have of, of Scripture, of manuscripts, uh, we can see where the changes happened, and we can fix them. Okay. And so text, text, textual criticism should lead us to have faith in our Bibles, but people like the guys I was reading were yeah. trying to erode my faith in the Bible. And, and college David did not know this. Oh, no. Because they don't want you to know it. Right. And but not only that, did like, you know, if we're supposed to test and weigh the types of things that are taught to mm-hmm. us, w- like were you just like was that something you were doing as a, as you were reading and processing? Oh, no, no way. I was taking it as as gospel because I think one of the things I hadn't learned to do well, uh even in college in my undergrad was um to question everything I was reading. Mm. Um and be like there is one infallible book, <laughs> not, you know, not, not, not two. Right. <laughs> and, and so I think I was like, man, this, 
this sounds good. It's well written. I mean, you should listen to Bart Ehrman teach. I mean, it is he is a dynamic speaker. Yeah. And you put him in a debate. It doesn't matter if he gets beaten logically. He sounds better. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like that's kind of what would happen is he was just more eloquent. Gotcha. And like College David loved that. And right. College David loved being an outlier. <laughs> and so I loved, you know, having stuff that can make my colleagues scratch their heads. Yeah. And I'd be like, ha, I've thought of something you haven't. Because I was just a proud fool, you know? <laughs> and uh, and so I loved being an outlier. Okay. And yeah. So that so by the time I got out of college, I did not believe in the inerrancy or the inspiration of Scripture. Okay. So so spell that out for a second <laughs> okay. for, for listeners yep. as you so, say that. Inerrancy, that the Bible is true and accurate in everything that it teaches, is okay. my definition of inerrancy. Right. Um, Which, I mean, it, it sounds like also that allows for... Well, one of the scribes left off piece. You know what I like? Oh, or, you yes. know what I mean? Like, right. or the, or the, oh, the. and 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 like the, the, the traditional uh, definition of inerrancy would add in its autographs, which means in the original thing that Paul put pen to paper. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yep, in Rep- the autographs. Yep. Um, and then uh, inspired is that the Holy Spirit breathed out and then speaks through those specific words in in such a way that He doesn't do anywhere else. Right. That they are inspirated, right? The yeah. spirit of God is inside yes. of it. Okay, so those, I didn't believe in either of those things. Okay, I was like, this book has been tampered with beyond repair, and it's a it's a man made document, not a God breathed document. And so that's where I was by the time I was out of college. So you're out of college. That's where you are. The, now, now the Bible is ancient literature that that does not have the touch of God right. on it, uh, in, inspiration from God, and and uh, and isn't accurate. No, uh, it's been tampered so, with so way too much. So al- along with you, like just just give us a glimpse along with your relationship with the Bible at this point where you're uh, not believing that it's inspired or inerrant. Where, where are you at with um, the 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 people? Uh, of God, the church. <laughs> yeah. So all throughout college, I was a youth pastor at a small church of Christ in Wellston, Oklahoma. Yeah. And, um, well, first I was the pulpit minister there. Oh man, I forgot year. that. Yeah. So I preached three sermons a week. Wow. Uh, in my freshman year of college. And, uh, I w- it was a 40 minute drive one way. And so I drive, you know, an hour and a half. Uh, three times a week. Yeah. I would drive up Sunday morning, preach, come back Sunday night, go out, preach. And there's no such thing as Wednesday podcast night. yet at this point. No, <laughs> you just listen to music or, or that's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Or Megan and I would talk. She, my, you know, my, yeah. my girlfriend at the time would, would drive with me. Yep. And, uh, and so I was doing that. Then I was, and, and then I was a youth pastor there. They were like, start a youth group. And I was like, there, there are no kids at this church. <laughs> Who's going to come to it. <laughs> but we grew a ministry up to like 25 kids. And I loved it. It was, right. I loved that time in my life. But um, it was time to leave there, and uh, so we were looking for a church in this in this period of time. And around this time too, my first real poetry video kind of came out yeah. with Life Church, and like I remember it. You know, got like a million views. Yeah. And if you, if, uh, side note: If you guys want to check it out, you look up uh, "Death and Its Sting." Yep. Um, and uh, and David Bowden, and you'll you'll find it, and you'll see fresh faced oh, David man. wearing a beanie wearing as he beanie. often often did. Yes, beanie to David. Yes. Um, young, high pitched voice fast-talking beanie to David. That's right. That's yep. right. And, uh, and and so a lot of the people I was meeting with, I felt like they were being mercenary, and they were like, oh, you're that poetry guy, and you should come be a part of our church because uh, we could really benefit from your gift. Exactly. And I was like, oh, right, I don't right. like that. Yeah, oh, it's timely to hire you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so uh, we were just kind of floating, you know, trying to figure out where we wanted to be. Um, and like I a was, noodle in a pool. Like a noodle in a pool. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> not your strongest. <laughs> what's the word? Allegory? No, what's the word I'm looking for? Metaphor. No, like a, like a, or a simile. Oh, simile. A simile. Yeah, no, that is a simile. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, uh, and so uh, this time, at this time, I'm, so I'm doing the poetry, but that's like a passion side project thing. That's not my full-time job. My full-time job was running a ministry called Give a Goat, where we gave goats to poor families in the Philippines. Me and a colleague from my Greek studies started it. He's Filipino. And uh, we started it. And, uh, and so I'm running Give a Goat. And I'm taking meetings with um, you know, potential donors and church leaders. And um, I meet with the community pastor from the church you attended around Bridgeway. this time, Bridgeway, yep. which now I am, <laughs> I, I, I attend. And uh, this guy, JJ, I meet with, and I meet with him just to be like, hey, here's my tight pitch for Give a Goat. You know, you should consider adding us to your missions budget. And by the end of it, three hours later, he's like, how, how are you and your wife? And Whoa. all this really intense stuff. So by the end of it, I asked him to be my mentor. And uh, he lets me unload on him week after week after week of like, so I don't believe in Satan. And here's why. And he doesn't do what everybody else was doing. I got one of two polarizing responses. On the one side, it was all my other burnout, like college friends who were like, yeah, duh, of course none of this is true. Like it took you this, you still believe too much, you know? And then there was the other side of the people who were like still had their faith, like my girlfriend and or my wife at this time now, right? who she's like, you're crazy. Like, this is scary. Don't go down that path. But no one would engage with me and be like, oh, that's really interesting. So, like, what research have you done that led you here, you know? And JJ just let me vent. And then he'd be like, oh, that's, yeah, okay, I, I know about John Dominic Crossan. Have you read William Lane Craig's response to him? And I was like, no. And I'm a reader. So he would, re he would give me, like, two or three books a week, and I would just devour it. And so he was just trickle feeding me book after book after book. And we moved to the Philippines for a while and lived there. And I'm reading a stack of books that he sent with me and I'm working through it. And one day everything just clicks with me. And, um, and it, it kind of came from two sides of the spectrum. One was more the theological one because one of my biggest hangups was with hell. Yeah. Like I just could not get my head around the doctrine of hell. And, um, the click that happened there for me wasn't, I don't even remember what I was reading. I know I was reading something. I, I think it might actually have been William Lane Craig's debate with John Dominic Crossan. Uh, Will the real Jesus please stand up? I think was the title of it. <laughs> yeah, it's solid. Fair enough. Solid branding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, and, uh, and I just remember having this thought that had to have been from the Holy Spirit because no person would think this for themselves. And it was, David, God could send you to hell and you would look up and call him good. And I was like, where did that? And I believed it in that moment when I thought it. It wasn't just a thought. I was like, yeah. that's true. And like everything was just resolved in a moment. Like I, I just believed everything. And the, and the other side of it that came was with scripture itself. So we were, we. Okay, wait, hold yeah, on. Yeah, before yeah, yeah, before yeah, we make ahead. that turn, because yep. we just, that, that was. Uh, that's big. That's seismic. Yeah, it was and, a huge moment. Right. And so, okay, like you, you have this thought. And um, it's a, you know, like just initially hearing it conversationally, yeah. I'm like, okay, I can sign off on that theologically, but right. also like interpersonally, like I'm, I'm like, whoa, okay, that's intense. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, I'm also trying to process and, and hear like, okay, you've had all this time with JJ, uh -huh. who side note, like, it's interesting to hear that you started with, I'm by myself in Mardell's. Yeah. And uh, and now uh, I have like an embodied version of Mardell's who actually cares about me and he loves me and he talks yeah, to me and right. I have somebody to process. And but he's giving me books, books to, to read yeah. and, and but also just being a sounding board. Mm -hmm. And then 
back to you and God. Mm-hmm. And this moment happens. Um, like, I, how, how did how did your wife respond when you like like how did you tell her or, or process with her like what what happened? The thing is, I was so ashamed of what I was thinking because I knew that it meant the thoughts that I had and the things I believed were excommunication worthy. You know, they right. were they right. were you're not a Christian anymore worthy. They were I don't know if you can be my husband worthy. So I just didn't share them with anybody except JJ. Wow, because. I didn't want to scare my wife off. I didn't want to, you know, lose uh, my Christian community. Cause like, and I think a big part of it was like, I knew I didn't believe, believe the stuff that I claimed to believe, you know, these heresies. Right. But like, I, I was like begging to be convinced otherwise. I was like, my heart's not in it, but my head sure is. Can someone please get my head in line worth my heart? Yeah. Cause I want to believe in everything that I grew up believing, but I, what about all these arguments against it? Right. And that's where the books came in. And so I didn't really process with Megan until after the fact. Wow. And so, so when, when after the fact came and she saw all the joy of my salvation come back and she saw that I was a better husband and that I was wanting to lead our family spiritually and that I was like, let's get plugged into this church. Yeah. And like, I was all over it. Then she was like, oh, I love this. <laughs> so, okay, I, I, I don't want to send you down a 20-minute a, a answer, but, okay. but for the person listening who just heard you find the joy of your salvation in the goodness of God, even in his personal judgment against you. Yeah. That is so heavy. <laughs> um, like, how, how would you, for the person who's wrestling with that and going, I cannot agree with that statement. Totally. What would you say to them um, or at least how, how would you share for yourself, like how, um, how that's come to be a thing that you, that not only it, it obviously it happened for you, but also you continue to look back on and say, yes, yes. In Christ, I affirm that again. I think a big part of it is, um, there is something that is heart level and faith based that has to be revealed to you, um, by the Holy spirit in order for you to get to that place. And that might sound like a Gnostic type answer where it's like a hidden knowledge or something. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, it's, it's the fact that um, I cannot do for you what only God could do for me, right? Mm, so nothing yeah. I'm going to say is going to convince you that God is just and right to send people to hell. Now, I could have that discussion, and I've had it many, many times, and I'm comfortable to have it. But I think the preeminent thing to bring up in a short answer yeah. is that what happened to me on that day was that I got a view of God's goodness. And it was so good that it could not be polluted by anything, especially if the things I'm trying to tarnish it with were my own definitions of good and evil from my own myopic worldview. Wow. And so um, I just, I, 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 I remember like trying to get myself to throw stuff against God's goodness to make it ugly again, and none of it would stick. And it was just like, he's so good period like end of argument yeah. and um and that's whenever it all came crashing down was it was just like he could send me to hell and i would look up from look up to him i'd be like you are good and i would worship him mm. but i would be in hell man <laughs> you know like for for all the ways that for somebody out there that's that's uh you know st- maybe still that's really like, hard uh, to hear yeah yeah i yeah. get that um at the same time one of the things i love about uh about that that piece of your testimony is that 
it wasn't it wasn't like oh and so at a pivotal lunch with JJ he, right. he finally broke down my know, arguments exactly yeah. and, and it, it wasn't it was not uh, it was a prayer closet moment yeah yeah, yeah. and it, and and uh, and just thinking about how even even in scripture when when Paul writes about leaders and says look I I sowed some seeds, somebody else watered, but God gave the increase. Yeah. And how and how JJ was there, mm-hmm. nurturing and caring for you, and watering with this, these other other kind of counter arguments and things to process. But it but it wasn't ultimately about logic. No, it was it was about an encounter with God. Yeah, which is a fun part of. I love that part of my story too because I'm such a logical person. Right. That the brain side of it is huge for me. That I love that the moment that came crashing down all my old heresies wasn't a particularly cogent argument. Yeah. Okay. So, so from there, you were about to, to pivot towards. All right. Now. Oh, the other side. Going forward in a journey with Scripture. Yes. After this this new moment with mm-hmm. the Lord, what's next? Yeah. So I got and, and the timeline's fuzzy, right? But the other big crux for me is one of God's greatest ironies in my life so far, um, which I love as a poet. You know, he's just, he's really good at writing stories. And um, and so I'm struggling with scripture. I'm reading all these books from J.J. Uh, you know, I'm reading Kostenberger and D.A. Carson and uh, White, and all these people have written like the pivotal books on the inspiration, inerrancy, reliability of scripture. Okay, and when you say, because there's a lot of guys with the last name White. Yeah, oh, uh, I think it's James White. Oh, fair enough. I okay. think, I gotcha. can't remember. That's no, why I just no said worries. White, because I can't remember. <laughs> it's Scripture alone is the book, <clears throat> but by White. So Scripture gotcha. alone by White. Okay. Uh, I think Heresy of Orthodoxy by, or, by uh, Kostenberger, and then Collected Writings in Scripture by D.A. Carson. All anyway, right. okay. there you go. Whoa, can't believe I remember those. Okay. In the moment, show notes. In the moment, show notes. Uh, okay, so uh, while I'm wrestling with all this, a local church uh, in Oklahoma City, uh, and I'd barely been doing public ministry, you know, uh, they asked me to come and write a series of four poems for their church. They're going to do a series called I Believe, and they're going to have I Believe in Jesus, I Believe in Satan, I Believe in God's People, and I Believe in the Scriptures. Wow. And um, I remember hearing all of those and going like, well, I believe in Jesus, so I can write that. And like, my, 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 my Jesus is more like the historical Jesus, but it's fine, you know. Um, and then I was like, oh, I believe in Satan. That'll be a fun one because I can flip the, you know, their version of Satan with the horns on its head. And I, I used the feminine, the feminine pronoun for Satan the whole poem. I called, it, I called him a, a her because she's like seductive and trying to lure you away. Uh, kind of a Proverbs type. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like the yeah the, fool, the foolish woman, the woman of folly kind right. of thing. Uh, and then God's people, I was like, I, lo- I actually do love the church. I never really had a problem with the church, uh, and I definitely get people who do, but that was just never my struggle. Yeah. Um, and then, But then the scriptures one almost kept me from taking the whole contract because I was like, I don't know if I can honestly write this. So I was like, all right, God, here's the deal. <laughs> I was like, you're going to have to work with me on this. And by the end of writing this poem, I will either turn down the whole gig or I'm going to believe in the inspiration of scripture again. And like, those were the terms. And so I set out to study because that's what I, that's my first step in writing any poem is I do study. And I was like, let's start over God, you and me in the Bible. What, like, where are we going to go? And it got to the point where, you know, I was like, okay, second Timothy three sixteen. here we are. All scripture is God breathed. I was like, the heck does that mean? It's such weird language, yeah. you know? Uh, I was like, we don't, we don't, whenever you see a balloon blow up, you don't, you don't go, man, that's a nice 
David breathed balloon. Right. That's just bad language for us. Yep. And so I was like, what does this mean? I'm like, oh, okay. It points us to Genesis, which if you've listened to the Spoken Gospel podcast, everything does. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and so I'm back in Genesis and I'm seeing that the same thing that breathed into dirt and created Adam is the same thing that breathed on Paul and Jeremiah and Hosea and Luke to create this living thing known as scripture. And I was like, oh, there's a paradigm for this that I'm willing to accept uh, that God can breathe on something uh, that is uh, terrestrial, right? Like dirt, Mm, right? And create something living, breathing, that is somehow a dependent yet autonomous hybrid of God and man. Like, I was like, I have a paradigm for this that I'm willing to accept um, in Genesis. And yet when I go to scripture, the interplay between God's inspiration and man's vocabulary and context. life experience and context and um, prejudices. Yeah. Yeah, I was I, like, I read Paul very unkindly. I was like, he's always an angry Pharisee. Yeah. And like one of JJ's like moments with me was like, you're, you're reading this week is to read all the letters of Paul and be nice to him while you do, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. It's <laughs> a great assignment. It was a great assignment. And it was very pivotal, life-changing. And, um, and so I was like, oh, there's this paradigm now that I can, have, that I can apply and that, that you know, Paul in, in his letter to Second Timothy, to Timothy did apply. And he's saying that, you know, we humans, that God has allowed to write these scriptures, you know, and he was thinking of the Old Testament writers, you know, when he when he wrote this, he's like, God breathed on them like he breathed on dirt. And the the what happened there is some kind of holy interplay between the terrestrial and the heavenly. And um, we're not and like I'm fully fine with not understanding how that works from an anthropological level, like how humans are knit together with the breath of God. I don't feel like I have to have that figured out to walk. Yeah. Right. Or to like have a conversation with someone or right. to enjoy how something tastes. Right. But I felt like I had to have all that figured out from A to Z in order to read Romans. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so in that moment, it was kind of the same thing. Like I was like, this is God breathed. End of argument. And I was just happy to accept it. And it was another just faith moment where, and that's really the story of like, my journey with faith and my journey with scripture is there are just times that God has had to come in, override my pesky brain and just uh, bring faith into it. And then he takes me on a journey and my brain catches up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, there are really great arguments, you know, like the textual manuscripts arguments that we talked about earlier. There are really good arguments to, to solve this. But at the end of the day, none of these things are brain issues. They're heart issues. And until you fix that, you're not going to, no, no argument's going to convince you otherwise. So you, you get to this place where you're, you're going, okay, I'm, I'm back in hundred percent on scripture. It's God breathed. Um, how then does that jump to like, what's the trail from there to where we are today? And you've started an organization that has a claim about scripture mm-hmm. that isn't just about inspiration, but is about Jesus right. and his part in the Bible. Right. So this poem, I believe in the scriptures, which if 
if you're a fan of me at all or have been listening to this podcast and you haven't watched that video, I'd be surprised. But go watch it, I guess. It's, yeah, no, it's totally It's one of those very it. old videos that I grimace watching. Oh, come on, man. But Every band has its first couple albums and songs. But, it's, you know. I Believe in the Scriptures is still one of my favorite poems today. Yeah. And uh, maybe find a live version that I've performed more, more recently <laughs> on YouTube. But anyway, uh, that poem, so I perform it, right? Like, because... I was convinced. And so like you can imagine the passion that I put into that live performance because yeah. I was like, I just started believing this, you know, like it's crazy. <laughs> and like my joy was back. Like I loved my Bible again. Everything was different. And uh, I felt the Holy Spirit. It was awesome. And so after that performance at this church in Oklahoma City, um, a guy comes up to me and he's like, who in the world are you? And I was like, who in the world are you? <laughs> you know. And we start talking and come to find out that um, he's part of the Green family that owns Hobby Lobby, you know? Oh, and I think they own another store, right? Oh, and Mardell. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, they own Mardell. And, uh, and so, like, it's a fun part of the story. I also stole an eraser from Mardell one time, <laughs> and I forgot to tell Mart, who started Mardell, who I'm talking about right gotcha. now. We became really good friends, and I forgot to tell him that I stole this eraser. And, like, there's this whole story from when I was a kid, whenever uh, my dad found the eraser, and he made me go get reprimanded by a manager at Mardell. Oh, yes. Right? Uh, I, but I put it in my first book, When God Isn't There. And so Mart's reading when God isn't there and he texts me and he's like, he's like, uh, cause I just put a, a Christian bookstore. Right. <laughs> and so he's like, did this happen at a Mardell? And I was like, yes. And he's like, I know which manager it was. Oh cause he, had, he heard this story <laughs> anyway. And so this guy, Mart comes up to me and he's like, who are you? And I was like, I'm David. I don't know. Like, he's like, that was amazing. And little did I know Mart is all about the Bible. He's given his life to, um, to one statement, this book is alive. Wow. And uh, him and his family have committed themselves to seeing the word of God be translated into every nation and every language on the, on the planet because there's, seven, there's over 7,000 languages on the planet. I, if you would have asked me wow. seven or eight years ago, I would have guessed 500, right. you know? And there are over 7,000, and um, a third of them still don't have a single word of scripture in their language. So they literally just can't read the Bible, That's right? Tragic. It's so tragic. It, and so um, he's like, do you want to come with me to New York in a week? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so we fly to New York and I end up performing, I believe in scriptures at American Bible Society's headquarters, which is now turned over 200 years old. Whoa. And they're the oldest Bible society, I think in the world. And um, in that room are the presidents of every major Bible translation organization in America. And I perform this poem, and it really impacts them. And the president of, of a scripture translation agency called The Seed Company, which is part of Wycliffe, was there. His name's Roy Peterson. He runs ABS now, American Bible Society. But he's there. And I get an email from him not too long after that, and he invites me to come speak at their staff retreat. Okay, wait, hold yep. on. Okay. So in New York City, yep. how many weeks... Like like from from the time that you decided I believe in the scriptures uh-huh. to you're performing it in front of the American Bible less Society. than a month oh my goodness less than a month God's grace God's on grace amazing using my weakness right to then become the strength of my ministry it's crazy and where you get to be like yeah that was all God all God oh my goodness yes and so then I'm at the seed company Bible translation staff retreat. And I go perform I Believe in the Scriptures on stage, right, uh, for the staff of this Bible translation agency, a group doing something that 
two months before, I really wouldn't be that excited about. And now I'm like, this is the greatest ministry in the world. People need the Bible. It's God breathed, you know? And, uh, and so I come off stage and now a close friend of mine, her name's Lisa. She was the event planner and she, she goes, Hey, that was great. And I was like, Oh, thanks. She goes, you passed the test. And I was like, I didn't know I was being examined. Yeah. And she goes, you want to go to India? And those are the next words I heard out of her mouth. What? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, a few months later that December, uh, December of 2011, I am flying to India uh, to go see a Bibleist people group in Bihar, India. You, uh, so you like a, a community? <laughs> yep. A that, whole th- there was four language clusters there that, uh, and I can't. I still today can't say those names on air because they're being persecuted. Wow. But there are several language clusters there that are still uh, needing the scriptures translated. So I go and see one of them in a village. And they'd never heard the Bible before, and uh, part of, part of it was being translated into their language. And they had Genesis one through three done, and they were going to do some community field testing because they like to see if it sounds natural the way it's it's been translated. Oh right. And so they they when you say sounds natural. Uh huh. So because they're illiterate. Okay. So only thirty percent of this people group can read. Oh wow. And so they get a voice actor, you know, to come and record it. Yeah. This reading, and then they put it on a solar powered speaker box. And they take it to villages and press play. And uh, we pulled into this village and uh, all, the, all the people are already gathered because there was a literal snake charmer there doing his tricks. And so he drew a crowd. And okay. when he was done, we took over. Wow. And so we put the Bible in a box down, push play. And these this group of 40 or 50 women really um, listened to Genesis 1 through 3. No context. Let's read the Bible. Here we go. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm watching them. I don't understand a word of what's happening, but I'm watching them. And you can tell when Eve eats the fruit because they all gasp and are offended. And my translator's like, Eve just ate the fruit. And I was like, oh, they're, like, they're so like offended by it. And I was like, I've never been that offended by that story. Right. Anyway, and so they finish They and they talk for a bit. There's a preacher there who, who preaches. And they're like, okay, it's your turn. Do you have any questions you want to ask? And I was like, yeah, what did this mean to you? And so um, this one lady raises her hands, and it has to go through two translators before it gets to me. And what she said, and you have to remember, we're in India, so these these people are culturally Hindu. They have hundreds of gods. Yeah. And she said this. I'll never forget it. She said, <laughs> I always knew there was one true God who created everything, but I couldn't believe it until I heard that truth in my language. That's incredible. Yeah. And like that blew my mind on two levels. One, on the scripture translation level. I was like, people need the word of God in their language because look what it does, right? Like it completely cut to her heart. Uh, But the second thing, I was like, man, scripture's powerful. Like that's a living and active word. Yeah. Because that didn't say there's one true God who created everything. You shouldn't believe in these other gods. It was just like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he made everything. And it's like, and it just blew her mind and it cut to her heart. And now, like, there's a church there, like, because the word of God went there, right? And so I'm like, I'm just now getting my head around the living and active word of God. And I've already been convinced of one key factor is that God's word is sufficient. Yeah. It's enough. Like, you can get up and read it and you've done your job. Like, it is powerful. And so then I spent the next seven years working um, you know, like do, doing my poetry thing, right? Writing, writing a few books, but that whole time I'm working in the scripture translation world too, doing advocacy and doing events and like 
my wife and I have been partners, donors, advocates for eight years for scripture translation. We're all in. Okay. You know, go to seedcompany.org and go donate now. <laughs> like, you know, like, but, um, so this whole time, like, God is doing something in me with, right. with, with, with what, when it comes to scripture. Okay. So, so in the midst of that, like, like everything I heard just now is one incredible. You've told some, you told me some of that before, but even hearing it again, I'm just going, praise God. That's so incredible. But yeah. here's, here's what I'm curious about. Like it's, it's one thing to say scripture is enough. Mm. It's another thing to say, um, throughout all of scripture, we can meet Mm-hmm. and trust and savor Jesus Christ. Right. So help me yep. trace the thread for me to go from you do a uh, you do a poem on I believe the scriptures mm-hmm. to also now going all right the scriptures are all about Jesus. Right. So um in this in these books that I was being fed by JJ little did I know all these guys were reformed dudes uh and so uh <laughs> and so I'm like being trickle fed reformed doctrine and uh and and so I start getting into reform dudes, you know, so I start reading guys like Tim Keller, who you talked about last week. Right. And I too start listening to some of his sermons and reading some of his books. And you know, what I learned in college, which I still do today is if there's a book you love, look at their bibliography because you need to go read their source texts. Yep, yep. Yep. And so I go to Tim Keller's bibliographies and I find the treasure trove of source texts, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, Edmund Clowney, you know, like these guys who, who trained Tim Keller, like that's who I wanted to know. Right. And so I start reading these guys and, uh, you know, um, and consummately again, the book you mentioned last week, Jesus on every page by David Murray was, was super helpful in this, but I just started. And just as a side note, that among some of the ones that David's listed in this episode, that book is, is not, uh, that's not like a, an academic. No, not at all. Uh, popular level book. Thomas Nelson published it. Right, right, right. Because some of the, some of the ones you're referencing are are a little, you know, they're highbrow. Yeah. A little more highbrow, a little more, you know, curriculum based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one's super approachable. Right. And, um, so for, for like three or four years, and this is what happens. I usually throw myself into a topic. Yeah. So uh, I've, see, I've seen you do this a number in, of times. Up until uh, I wrote When God Isn't There, I was studying God's absence through the Bible. And so when I, an agent reached out and was like, have you ever wanted to write a book? I'm like, yes, here. Uh, just let me write this book on God's absence. And uh, and so that's kind of what happens. And so there was this season of time where I I was just obsessed with this small little theological group that was seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. And, and they you can trace this the existence of this type of reading of the bible all the way back to the apostles i mean there has always been a a group of people translating the bible this way throughout church history um and i was like i was just fascinated by it and so i was reading everything i get my hands on uh, i was listening to podcasts i would go and like audit classes on apple university you know and you can like listen to like stuff from reform theological seminary and right. all this stuff uh, which i know you and i've both listened to an edmund Clowney tim keller class yes uh that, that that's amazing preaching christ in a postmodern culture yep so good go look that one up yeah so it amazing it's, it's it's awesome and, and it's so free. It, it was just a journey you know of like study and um and i just not only did i become convinced of it theologically um it's again it's a head heart kind of thing where as I started to see that Jesus was in my, my whole Bible, um, not only was the Bible living and active, but um, I started to see it as something that, oh man, that, that let me see what I always wanted to see, you know, which there was this, I, and I argue that this is in every single person, that there's a deep ache that we all have. 
to see the glory of God. And we fill that with all kinds of things, uh, you know, a number in our bank account or uh, pornography or a beautiful or handsome spouse or a house or cars or success or uh, alcohol, you know, whatever it is, we are trying to fill up the gap of eternity in our hearts. And what that is, is the glory of God. We just will not be satisfied until we see his glory. And Second um, Corinthians 3 and 4 tell us that the glory of God is found in the Bible, in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I was just convinced of that and started to experience it for myself. And um, so that's kind of at least the theological backing of how all that happened. Yeah, for sure. And, and even as you're saying some of that, I'm, I'm agreeing with you mentally and at the same time, like heart-wise, trying to understand or process like, okay, um, if if that's true, mm-hmm. if... Uh, if it's true that that we're we're all wrestling with what C.S. Lewis calls the God-shaped hole and right. trying to fill it with different things, um, you know, there's so many preachers and uh, and and ministries and pastors around the the country and the world who, I mean, they're 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 preaching the Bible. They would agree with you about inerrancy, mm-hmm. and they would agree with you uh, about inspiration and the fact that the the word is God breathed. Uh, but when they teach or when they preach. Um, they they may not uh, do the uh, the gospel centered kind of outline or rubric or have that same mentality even though they believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like why why has that led you to want to um, like start start spoken gospel, mm-hmm. create this organization? Like why is it that important? Because some would listen to say and say to this and say that's really beautiful and I think it's great, but you don't always have to teach that way. Right. That's one path among many. Exactly. Right. 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 Um, why why is this everything to me yeah why why you know basically say i'm going to give my life until i die to help people see jesus in all scripture exactly uh several reasons um one i'm not going to rank these i'm just going to try to list them as i can think of them one is i believe and we can you can ask me questions on on why but i believe that we are not reading the bible aright unless we see jesus in a given text um I think you mentioned you mentioned it last week when we talked about the Bible as narrative, and um, we just we are not going to understand um, the Abrahamic covenant. We're not going to understand the 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 conquest of Canaan and the genocides that happened there. We're not going to understand um, the Levitical system of sacrifice. We're not going to understand the distinction between kosher and unkosher food. Right? We're not going to understand these things until they get to Jesus and he shows why all of this stuff was a type and a shadow and a picture of something fuller and more complete. Uh, and so like, and, until we get to Jesus, we're reading half the story. And so we're not reading our Bible aright until we get to Jesus. Okay, so uh, among the many things you just listed out, and, and I'm, uh, I'll tease that that uh, on our on our uh, third installment, we'll wrestle with a few more of the ones that you just okay. listed. Deal. But for now, let's just deal with bacon and pickles. Oh, like, sure, just, easy just, one. Just kosher food. Just yeah. help. Like just if you were to give a short answer of, mm-hmm. oh well, we can't understand kosher versus not kosher mm-hmm. uh, un- until we get to Jesus. Okay, right. uh, help me out there. So. Um, you know, in Leviticus, there's these laws that say, uh, you know, you can eat these types of insects, but not these types of insects. And you can eat this type of animal, but not, you know, but, you know, only if it splits the hoof or not splits the hoof or chews the cud, but doesn't chew, chew the cud. And the interesting thing is these assignments of food you can eat and not eat seem arbitrary because no reason is given. Right. And people have tried 
to suggest reasons, health reasons. Uh, you know, oh, they didn't have proper cooking techniques. Yes, they did. They didn't know how to clean animals. They know how to clean animals better than anyone. You know, they. I mean, they. That's all. That's the only way. They right. didn't have machines to do it. They knew how to clean animals. Uh, so it wasn't a health thing. They knew how to cook food properly. I mean, half of Leviticus is, is a recipe book. They know how to cook food. Uh, and so why then? Why this distinction between clean and unclean? Well, first off, we have to talk about if we're reading Leviticus, Leviticus is about clean and unclean. Like those are ritual ceremonial terms about those who can be near God's presence and those who can't. And so what God is doing is he's saying, I am choosing things that are clean and things that are unclean. I'm not going to give you an answer why I've chosen that this is clean and this is unclean. Because what does that remind you of, Israel? You. I have chosen you out of the nations to be a people holy unto me. Oh, what's the synonym for holy in Leviticus? Clean. You are clean unto me. You're distinct from me. Why? No reason is given other than I chose you because I chose you. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful, right? Yeah. Like it's just God made that choice. And so um, what's ama- and so like in their very diet, like in the kitchen, Israel is forced to see their distinctive coldness uh, when it comes to God's election of them because of the, uh, God's election of their diet. And so, uh, and so the unclean foods are representative. Well, who eats those? The Gentiles do. The Gentiles eat that kind of food yeah. because they're unchosen. So there's this distinction between the chosen and the unchosen. So when we get to Jesus and he abolishes the food laws and we see this, this um, net come down from heaven in front of Peter right. in, in Acts 9, and we, we see, don't call anything I've made clean. There's no longer a distinction. And then he goes to the house of Cornelius and he sees the Holy Spirit come to the Gentiles. Yep. What do we see? It's a theological point, not a dietary point that God is making here. And Jesus is saying, I have chosen all nations to be mine. And he does, and, and, and by abolishing a food law, he's not just saying like, say whatever you want, I don't care. No, no, no. He's making a very distinct point through something uh, physical and incarnate among us. What we eat, very intimate thing, right. to make a very huge theological point that it's no longer Israel that is, that is my chosen people alone, but all nations are chosen. So therefore, all food is open to you because yeah. it's a picture of who are mine and all are mine. That's awesome. So that God like, picks back up that piece of the story, but only to be understood because of what Jesus has that's done. Right. And so it feels arbitrary until we get to Jesus. Okay. So we're not reading our Bibles or right okay. until we get to Jesus. So that was, that was answer number one. Yes. Give, give, us, give us a couple more with the, the couple <clears throat> yeah. minutes we have left. So like number two is we are not going to read the Bible in a transformative way until we see Jesus in all of Scripture. Okay. <laughs> so let's look right at 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Um, and Second uh, Corinthians three is pulling on the story of Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus thirty three and thirty four, and so Moses is having this conversation with God in the tent of meeting, and he asks this audacious request, and he says, "God, show me your glory." Yes, and I'm I'm going to interrupt and say, side note, if you want to hear more of oh, David explain this, yeah. he just preached a great sermon uh, on uh, at Bridgeway. So yep. if you look up Bridgeway Church, well, it's actually we um, we we released it, we're releasing it on the podcast. Hey, okay. Yeah, well, there you, you go. I, I think it comes out literally in like two days. I did not know that. So yep. there you go. You, then Hopefully you've already listened to it. Hopefully you've already not, listened to it. And for time reasons, we're going to skip the explanation piece because it's in that and it's awesome and yes. you, you should listen to it. So, yes. Um, okay. So, so we're not reading in a transformative way. Right. And so Unless we, unless see, we Jesus. see Jesus. And so Moses goes up the cleft of the rock and God's glory passes by and Moses sees it, and it's like one of those, like, I wish I would have been there moments, yes. you know? And he walks off the mountain, and his face is shining, because that which we, he, behold, he, he beheld, he became. Yeah. 
And then, so Paul picks up on this story and he's like, that glory is still there today. But if you remember, after Moses came off the mountain uh, with his face shining with the glory of God, the people uh, put a veil over Moses' face to hide the glory because it was super scary, apparently. Right. <laughs> and uh, and he says, that veil, not a physical one, but there's a spiritual veil that remains today. And it's not over some dude's face, uh, like Moses' face. It's over what Moses has written, which was shorthand for all of Scripture. Yeah. And he's like, there's this veil over your heart so that whenever you come to read the Old Testament, and I would extend that to the scriptures of the New Testament, um, this veil remains unlifted is what Paul says. And so when you come to to the Bible, you cannot see the glory of God. And what's the glory of God? Uh, He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it is is the knowledge of the light of the gospel of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. And so it's Jesus that we long to see in scripture. So like it's Jesus pre-incarnate Jesus that Moses saw yeah. in the cup of the rock. So, but let's talk about transformation because I'm saying if you don't see that. Right. You're saying that matters for transformation yes, purposes. Right. So 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, right? Uh, that as we behold this glory, he says, as we open our Bibles, we turn to Jesus and we see Jesus in scripture because that only by turning to him is the veil removed and the Holy Spirit gives us freedom to see the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ all throughout scripture. He says, as we behold we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. And so, you know, we talked last week about like the Bible used punitively against us to keep us from saying dirty words. Right. It's like, how does the Bible actually transform us? It's by beholding Jesus, that he's the one with the mouth who not only didn't speak an impure word, his mouth spoke all things into existence. Yes. And yet it's his mouth that said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing as he took our punishment on himself. Amen. Like, that's the good news that we need to hear. And when we hear that, when we see it, when we behold Jesus in scripture, that is how we're transformed, is by seeing him because we'll be changed into his image. Right. We become what we behold. So as we behold Jesus in scripture, we become like the Jesus we behold. Right. Through through the the, the transforming work of the Spirit, mm-hmm. who is who's leading us to right. save our trust. And, yep. and, yeah, and then I'll, I'll do one more. Okay. And then we'll wrap. Uno mas. Uh, I would say three. I think that without seeing Jesus in all of Scripture, we are opening ourselves up to our greatest idol, which is legalism. So uh, what I mean by that... No, hold on. Okay. Actually, we're going we're gonna to stop there because oh, that's okay. gonna, that will be our lead-off discussion in the Ooh, third installment okay. to wrestle with because you've just made a claim not only about how our hearts are working but also even how that applies to what what do we do with the Bible yeah. in terms of, uh, like, if, if it's not increasing faith in Jesus, what sometimes does it increase in us? Yes. So we will okay, wrestle deal. with that All right, on, fine. As, as an intro, and, and in that third installment, what, what we'll do together, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll pass the host mic back to you, <laughs> we will uh, we'll work through some, some more practical do's and don'ts of how then, if this is true, how then do we protect ourselves from what you just talked about mm-hmm. of legalism, but also... Like, like, what are the functional, practical ways? What are some of the principles that are in the podcast baked into what you and Seth are doing right. that allow a lot of us who haven't don't have a Bible degree and haven't gone to seminary like to be able to do these things for mm-hmm. ourselves yep. um, and be led by the Spirit to see Jesus in all of Scripture? All right. Um, well, I'll sit on it then until next week. <laughs> all right. Okay. Perfect. All right, man. Well, thanks for hosting today, yes. Taylor. Hey, and listeners, thank you for joining us on the Spoken <laughs> Gospel podcast. Uh, this is guest host Taylor Walling signing off. Thank you, David, for uh, spending some time with your show today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) We'll see you guys next week. See ya.
Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to creating free, gospel-centered media that speaks the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. So to join us in our mission and view our resources, we invite you to visit SpokenGospel.com. Thank you.